You have stumbled onto another episode of Get Your Fill, Financial Independence and Long Life, where we invite you to help us explore ways to achieve those two goals. One way to have more money is to give less of it to the government, and that's why we're very fortunate to have Lynn Bagby here with us today. Lynn is a 1031 exchange expert, and she's done probably hundreds if not thousands of transactions helping folks to legally pay no taxes or very little taxes on property that they transfer from one investment into another. I would like to introduce her, but she has so many qualifications and so much to share that I'm going to actually ask her, Lynn, would you introduce yourself? I mean, what would you want me to say about you if I were doing the introducing? Just, just a little thing. I've been in this industry in New England since 2000. I think my designation is important, a certified exchange specialist, yeah. because what is that? Like, you know, it, I, think, I think the designation is important because this is all I do, like I do every single day. I'm not in court. I'm not doing people's tax returns. Right. I'm not working at the mall you know, or anything <laughs> like that. And this is not a hobby, nor is it for the company. So asset preservation is, is well recognized nationally. And our parent company is Stewart Title. So we're well capitalized. Stewart's been around for 120 years and asset preservation has been part of Stewart for 30. So I think the recognition because the qualified intermediary industry is not regulated. So let's start at the beginning and tell me what exactly is a 1031 exchange? All right, well, 1031 exchange is a tax code election, IRC section 1031, that allows um, investment property owners of investment real estate to be able to defer the taxes on the capital gain that would be due upon the sale normally. Through an exchange, you're able to get out of that property that you no longer want for many reasons, like you don't, you don't want that property any longer, or you want a different asset class that qualifies under investment real estate, or you're relocating. It allows you to get out of that and um, get into another piece of investment real estate but on the sale, you would normally pay those capital gains taxes. This time you don't. Through the exchange process, you're able to invest into that other property using your proceeds from the sale, which is going to include those tax dollars that you would normally pay the federal and state governments. So how long am I able to defer that tax? Could be indefinitely. You can exchange throughout the course of your lifetime, and you may not ever have to pay those. If there's no sale, there's no tax. So if you keep investing, then there's no taxes due. But if you decide you want to cash out, you are paying back to the beginning. You could also do a partial cash out and only pay some tax. So um, it can be, when it, th those capital gains taxes can be, be eliminated by either passing away or not selling. <laughs> so basically what happens is your heirs could get that property to step up and basis the tax deferment goes away. That would be for like the individual investor. If you are own property as a business entity, then that's going to be something that'll be worked out. But, you know, there's just no, you don't have to pay the taxes unless there's a, a cash out. So it's almost like all the sales that you did in between are really transfers. They're not considered sales. Um, no, they're exchanges. Exchange, yeah, sorry. Exchange. Yeah, that's I okay. use the lingo, the right lingo. <laughs> they're exchanges. You're getting out of one, one asset and you're using your profit and that tax money into the next set of asset or assets, as long as they're in the real estate classification category. Okay, so people who are, now I, somebody had told me that 
a, that you could take money from a REIT and put it into, or vice versa, you could sell your apartment building and, and, and do a 1031 exchange in, into, into a REIT. No, not a real estate investment trust. That's a stock. One of the um, categories that are not exchangeable, even though it owns real estate, would be the REIT because it's a stock. Okay, yeah. so stocks, bonds, and notes are not exchangeable, but there is a type of property called a Delaware Statutory Trust. They're REIT quality properties for the most part, if you're getting them from um, the ones that are governed by the SEC or even other properties that have those uh, Delaware Statutory Trust vehicles, they're, they're quality, quality institutional grade properties. So, um, but they're in the Delaware Statutory Trust, which are eligible for 1031 exchange. Okay. So uh, do I need to know ahead of time that I'm going to be, so I, like I sold a, a place, you know, like a month ago, can I say, oh, you know what? I wish I hadn't taken the money. I really wanted to do a 1031 exchange. Can I now do that? No, 1031 exchanges need to be set up prior to the sale. I can, as a qualified intermediary, we can save a deal at the closing table, <laughs> but what if everybody's willing to go have a cup of coffee um, or sit and check their phone messages <laughs> or scroll Facebook, right? So if you're willing to wait just a little bit, we can get documents out to the table. That's not ideal because here's the thing. You're taking a tax election on a real estate transaction. So your real estate transaction is just going to be just that. The tax election puts a different... Um, Cast, cast over it, meaning that you do have a timeline that you have to perform in. So basically, for example, the exchange has to be set up prior to the close of sale. At the closing of the sale, the qualified intermediary is going to receive your money. You have an extended timeline to be able to, by which you need to be able to purchase and close on the replacement property. And within that, and it's a 180-day period, including weekends and holidays, so, and then within that 180 day timeline, you've got a 45 day identification period. So there's a notice that the qualified intermediary will um, send out upon receipt of funds. There's a set of identification rules. And by midnight of the 45th calendar day, your identification notice needs to be received by the qualified intermediary as to what you intend to purchase. Now that said, you can also close on your replacement property within that 45 day window too, that's fine. You're able to buy multiple properties as well. So. Um, there's rules about all of that. But I guess the main point, Christine, is that the timeline starts the date you close your sale. However, as in a real estate transaction, you're negotiating what you want to buy and looking, possibly, while you're waiting to get your property sold, just like in any other transaction. You just want to close the, um, the, have the closing for your relinquished property sale first, and then close on your replacement property after. So I have to uh, identify up to three properties that I want to purchase, but what happens if for some reason I'm not able to actually buy one of those three properties? Okay, well, first of all, you don't have to identify three under the three property rule. You can identify up to three with the intention to buy one, two, or all three. Here's one thing people need to keep in mind. For a full tax deferral, you need to be purchasing replacement property or properties that total an equal or greater value than the property you sold minus your allowable costs of sale, which there's about four of those. So equal or greater than that net sales price. Um, we're talking about the value. So the value is that contract price for which someone's agreeing to buy your property from you for, okay? And then minus the allowable cost of sale. So you can do that under the three property rule by identifying one, two, or three properties to reach that goal. 
So um, let's just say though that you've been out looking and you just can't find anything. You set up the exchange, qualified intermediary has your money, day 45 is approaching and you're like, you know what, Christine, I can't find anything to buy. I'm assuming you're my real estate agent. So day 45, I just can't find anything. I, you know what, I just stop looking. I don't want to continue with the exchange. Don't identify. Call a qualified intermediary. There's forms you have to fill out, but day 46, they can release your funds. However, if you do identify, the QI has to retain your funds for the remainder of the 180 day period. And you can, if you don't close on that property, you can request them back day 181. In either scenario, you just pay your taxes like usual. The QI will retain their, their fee um, because their fee, we're a fee for the work. It's not, the, it's not their fault. They, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, but they don't come take your kids. They don't come, you know, they don't come do anything. They don't, they don't come and pick up your dog. Um, <laughs> the point being is that you're simply just going to go and pay your taxes on your next tax return as if you never set up the exchange. Right, right. Okay. Okay. So it is a mechanism to allow you. So at that point in time, basically you've paid for the option to be able to do the exchange. But you, yeah. And it's then, it, but you can't now say, oh, I actually found a fourth property that I like. It's just like, it's too bad at that point. Not after day 45, yeah. up to day 45, say for example, you close on June 1st. Okay. Um, you send it an ID notice on July 20th. I mean, I'm assuming your 45th day at this point would be July 15th. So June 20th, you send an identification notice, but 10 days later you go, I don't like the, I don't like that property that I identified. I don't want to buy it because I found one I like better. Yeah. You rescind the original identification notice to the qualified intermediary. Just let them, you know, there's, you just rescind it via, um, a signed scanned, email attachment to say I've, I rescind my previous identification notice dated such and such and I want to replace it with this one. Mm -hmm. Send in a new ID. Here's why. Because there's different property rules that you get to choose to identify under. The first one's the three property rule. The second two allow you to identify four or more properties but you have to fit within those guidelines. So say for example you've identified three properties on one but now you're going to change them all. Now you've at, you've, you've identified six if you just sent in a new ID notice with three new properties. So you do need to rescind the first one because you could totally screw up your exchange. Your qualified intermediary is here to have those conversations with you as the investor. That's the role I speak to you from today as the qualified intermediary. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot to it. I definitely, you don't want to try this on, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just need to have a knowledgeable um, Qualified intermediary and a knowledgeable tax counsel, you know, a tax consultant like a CPA accountant that's willing to work in conjunction with the qualified intermediary. Yeah. So, so why is this such a valuable tool for investors? It's really one of the last big, one, big ones left. When you see the amount of capital gains taxes that could be due on your sale, for example, in the state of Massachusetts, here's what you, here's what you got going. We've got, um, first of all, you've got the depreciation recapture tax. There's four taxes that comp, uh, comprise capital gains taxation. First one's depreciation recapture. So you get tax credits called depreciation during the amount of years you own the property for residential real estate rentals, for example, it's 27.5 years. For commercial property, it's 39. So say you've owned a property for 10 years, you've probably taken 10 years worth of depreciation, not just on the building itself, but any capital improvements you've made, which would start the year that you start reporting those on your taxes too. 
That tax is a flat tax of 25% on the value of depreciation taken, okay? Then you've got the federal capital gains tax, which is based on income, but it, and it's either 15 or 20%. It's your capital gain minus the value of depreciation times either 15 or 20, based on which tax bracket you're in for capital gains. Then you have the net investment income tax, which was part of the Affordable Care Act, which came out in 2013. It's now called the net investment income tax. And that's 3.8 on the, again, the gain minus the depreciation times the 3.8. And then in the state, and those three taxes are federal. Then we have the state capital gains tax for Massachusetts, which is on the entire gain, which is either somewhere between 5.1 and 5.2. I usually have people calculate at 5.2 because, you know, there's a, it's a fraction there, so you can get a better fee. We actually have that capital gains calculator on the Asset Preservation Inc. website. So if people want to go to www.apiexchange.com go to the 1031, uh, the 1031 resources, and then just scroll down to see the uh, capital gains calculator. There's a way that you can um, work a lot of your numbers through to find out. That's so gonna ask you questions, you just fill in the blanks, and it'll give you an estimate. As always, investors should go take that information and consult with their CPA or tax advisor to make sure that they've done it properly. So it's a good guesstimate when you can't sleep at night. And then go see, go talk to your tax advisor. <laughs> I agree. And we'll also put a link to that calculator on getyourfillpodcast.com. So folks, if they're already, you know, listening from there, they can just click the link and, and uh, go right to that calculator. Sure. So I feel like I am starting to understand how it all works, but um, let's do an example um, of how if I were just a, a small investor, let's say I'm a small investor. And like you were saying before about selling a vacation property. So mm -hmm. how could that work? If I, if I just want to sell one vacation property and buy a different one in another area, how could that work within the 10, could that work within the 1031 exchange framework? Well, it can for several factors. So as the QI, if you were my client and you were coming to me with that scenario, I have a list of questions I usually ask, but the first thing is to find out if your vacation home is actually a qualifying vacation home that would be deemed investment as opposed to a second home. Because um, I'm just going to coin a phrase, but the IRS, they're a bunch of friendly people. I've had to call them before for things personally. So everyone's been really wonderful, but they are collecting taxes. So they have a job to do. So the point being is that the IRS as a whole will allow you to have a little bit of fun, but not too much. So there is a difference between a qualifying vacation property for investment purposes and a, a vacation home where you're using it, overusing it, having a little too much fun. And it's really going to be a second home. Second homes, for the most part, are going to get taxed. It's not your primary residence for which you have the Section 121 exemption for. And it may not qualify under Section 1031 where you get the tax deferment for by buying other investment quality property, investment grade property. So that said, let's talk about your vacation home. Let's assume it qualifies. So which would mean that in the 24 month period prior to your sale divided into two 12 month periods, you've used that property a minimum of 14 days personally, because you, you do get to do it or less than 10% of the rental time, you get whatever's greater. So um, 
So let's just let, take a look at your two 12-month periods. Did you use it 14 days or less or less than 10% of the time? And those days don't have to be consecutive. Was it available for rent when it wasn't rented between your personal use time and the requirements that for the last 24-month period divided into two 12 months, they don't mean two years, they mean two 12-month periods, was it rented a minimum of 14 days each of the two 12-month periods, doesn't have to be consecutive, income reported on your tax returns, and all like that, it needs to look like investment property. And then when it's not being used by you during the qualified use time or the qualified investment rental time, it just basically sat empty, available for rent. Okay, so if you meet those requirements, it can qualify. So um, then I'm going to ask you, so how much are you selling the property for? You're going to give me a figure. And again, we're going to talk about what you want to buy. Do you plan on holding this out as qualifying vacation property? As QI would supply the, the guidance to you, you're going to discuss with your CPA to see how they want your records kept. Okay. And so that said, if you say yes and it meets the requirements, then fine. You can relocate to any into a, a, a vacation rental anywhere in the, in the United States. So if I knew I were going to sell my, if I knew I were going to want to do this, I would really have to make it. Um, so it has to have been rented at least 14 days. Each of the two 12-month periods, income declared at fair market rent on your tax returns. And if I just, if it was like, quote unquote, available for rent, but no one actually happened to be there and I did go in and use it, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to like create a scam here. I'm just wondering what, I'm actually thinking about a property that I own where, you know, I'm, I might have been up there for more than two weeks, but it was available for rent and I just went up because no one else was renting it. Well, that's a conversation to have with your CPA mm -hmm. because I can't speak to that. But I don't know what they ask if you were ever audited. Are they looking at electric bills? Are they looking at, you know, what are they looking for? We don't know that Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs that we might be leaving. <laughs> so the point being is, were, I would ask you too, were you doing actual maintenance work yourself? Were you doing, you know, were you doing those things? And ask your CPA if there's any, any of that time that could be uh, qualified as maintenance and repair work. Right. Do you have receipts? Do you have, like, have those conversations? Because it's not my role as a qualified intermediary to ask you that, just to simply look for red flags to see, okay, in this section you're qualifying, but now you're telling me you stayed there more than the 14 days. Mm -hmm. Well, what was going on while you were there? Were you out sunning on the deck or were you actually doing repair work? Right, right. They're not going to allow you an extra day, you know, an extra week because you painted a bathroom. Right. Okay, so <laughs> you want to have that conversation with your CPA to make sure that you haven't overused the property personally. Okay, interesting. So now, um, how, how has COVID affected this 1031 exchange? Well, there was, um, there was an extension issued by the IRS for a specific category of people. For example, if you currently have an investment property that is closed between April 1st of 2020 and May 31st of 2020, you're going to get an extension through IRS notice uh, 2020-23 <laughs> that is specifically for COVID-19, which is going to extend your 45-day identification timeline to July 15th, okay? So if you closed on March 31st, or if you're closing on June 1st, the extension's not gonna apply to you. 
It also applies to people who had year-end closings and, and beginning of the year and or whose 45-day identification period was between April 1st and May 31st or their 180-day deadline was between those time frames. Both of those, the, both of those scenarios are going to get the extension to July 15th as well. Yeah, because it's definitely been difficult to, uh, yes. to look at properties to, you know. Well, and I think that's what they were taking into consideration because during this pandemic time when there were restrictions, people weren't going to be able to freely move about. But as restrictions are starting to ease up and in some states, real estate was deemed an essential business, there were ways to work around it. So what happens in our role as the qualified intermediary? So anybody that's within these guidelines as we were even that had the timelines that went into those period of uh, the April 1st to May 31st, we notified them. Okay. But for anybody that's closing with those in those timelines, now we are sending out along with their identification notice, the IRS guidance, people are automatically getting these extensions. Yeah. Okay. okay. Now, can I add one more thing? If they choose not to take that uh, time, the identification timeline extension, and they want to stick to their 45 days and they're not going to continue the exchange, they need to notify the qualified intermediary by midnight of the 45th calendar day of their ID period that they are not going to continue. Yeah. Okay. But I don't know, personally, I don't know why most people, if they really want to stay invested, wouldn't just wait out the extension because you know what Murphy's Law is like, something might drop in your lap and you can't go back and reset it back up. But right. some people may have a real financial need. So that's a benefit for them. Yeah, so, exactly. that's true. That's true. Yeah, especially now where so much craziness is happening. Yeah, because you don't know, we don't know what we don't know yet. So, but it might, you know, benefit some people that they may need the money. And so this does give them, but they're the ones that have to make the call and say, okay, I'm not going to continue this. And they need to do it by day 45 yeah. of their original timeline. So as far as things being considered like property, could I, I mean, how general is that? Could I buy land after selling a condo or I mean, how? <laughs> yes, yes, you can. The like kind, real estate has always been the most broad asset class. Um, and it's the only one that's eligible now for 1031 exchanges since the tax reform bill a couple of years back. So it's anything that's classified as real estate under that real property asset class. So we, we look at that federally because realize section 1031 is a federal tax code and all states but Pennsylvania recognize it at the state level. Pennsylvania is the only state that doesn't recognize section 1031 for state tax purposes, okay? But federally it's recognized. So that said, you also then have to look at what a state deems real property. For example, I recently did, what well, was last year, I did an air rights exchange for air rights on a Brooklyn, New York property the person sold those air rights and purchased a multifamily rental building in Jamaica Plain. Wow. <laughs> so that qualifies. So one would need to check and be sure that air rights are considered real property in their state, for example. But there's things like cell phone tower easements. There are, um, there's some unusual things that people just don't think of that are uh, real property. Most people are thinking of the normal things like multifamily rental units, single family rentals, um, uh, retail, uh, a chunk of dirt, <laughs> um, all kinds of things. And one of the things, Christine, I always like to touch uh, on when we're dealing with properties specifically in Massachusetts around some of our cities and towns. We have a ton 
of multifamily properties, two to four units. And then when you get over five units uh, or five and more units, when you're getting into five to 10, even greater, but we have a lot of those properties. Many times, and I know you know I love this topic, but many times the owner occupies one of the units. So how, if I was an investor, let's just say you, because I'm the QI, if you were the investor and you lived in an owner-occupied four-family property, mm -hmm. let's just say due to the appreciation value, and these are still hot commodities around, mm -hmm. around this marketplace, mm -hmm. let's just say you're going to sell it now for a million dollars. I'm going to ask you as the investor, okay, so how are you, how are you claiming these units? Meaning what percentage of this of the properties, like the size of each unit, or is it like you live in 25% of the building or the units all the same size to where you have a, everything's 25% of that total value, usually determined by your CPA, by the square footage on the property, okay? Because let me segue a minute. Sometimes I'm dealing with owner-occupied twos, even if they're not, you know, an owner-occupied two, where it's an up, you know, a bottom level and a top level, but that top level actually has two floors. So 40% of the building on the bottom is a unit, and then the top two floors represent 60%. So I'm looking at those figures too. So that's why I ask those questions. But in your situation, it's an owner-occupied, for example, you live in a unit that's 25% of the space, the other three units total seventy-five percent or three quarters. Now we're going to look at the sales price of the property. You're selling for a million dollars. So the three units that are rental compromise seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of that building that's eligible under Section ten thirty-one because they've been held out for rental. The other twenty-five percent of the building. So you've lived there and you meet the requirements of having lived there two years out of five. Which P.S. by the way, CPAs actually look at it as twenty-four months out of sixty just so you know. <laughs> so you've lived there two years out of five, you're going to get that primary residence exemption since you qualify, say you've owned the building five years, you're going to be able to, and you've lived there, you're going to be able to take that exemption on the value of, of the capital gain on that unit, but then the rest is exposed uh, under for taxation if you don't sell or if you don't exchange. So you're going to do an exchange and buy, look for other replacement property for $750,000 net three-fourths of the allowable costs of sale, okay? So you don't have to go buy another owner-occupied property unless you want to. And how about if my, my kids lived in one of the units? That's, does that are, just get messy? Are you charging them fair market rent? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna send you to, to your CPA and say, you know, just ask your CPA about it how much rent were you charging them? If it's no rent, you might have a problem. But I have had situations where some of my clients have had their, their child in there, but the child is on SSI. They have a disability. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take a look at that. I'm going to say, talk to your CPA about it. If there are any factors where um, they could stand behind a, 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 a under fair market rent, You'd really need to prove it. And I have had some situations where it's worked out that way. But for the most part, if you're renting to family members, you need to be charging the range of fair market rent, not taking a loss. Mm -hmm. But every exchange, every scenario is a snowflake unto itself. Mm -hmm. And so I am not the one that determines that. The CPA does because they've got your entire tax record and reasons why. Yeah. So it's all, it, it really is going to go back to the type of um, the way that, 
the way that it's all been um, recorded in your taxes in yes, previous yes. years. Yeah. That's what tells your story. This is a tax election on a real estate transaction. So what's your tax history? What's your tax reporting history like? Does it support what you're trying to do? There's mm -hmm. a lot of factors involved, not just the fact, well, I held it out as rental. You know, yeah. there's, there's more factors when you start bringing in your life story. And this is one of the great things that I do love about this tax code is there's a little, there's some wiggle room. Yeah. It's not, there, there's some things that are set in stone, like your timelines, like um, when it needs to be set up. Um, things like that. Like you can't leave a closing and call the qualified intermediary a day later and say, I didn't cash the check. Can I do an exchange? No, <laughs> it has to be set up prior to the sale. So there's some bases that you have to tag, right? Mm -hmm. That are set in stone, but there's some gray area out there, which is life. And so based on your circumstances, um, I'm not going to be the one to say, no, you can't do it unless you're trying to exchange your primary residence because you only live there a year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're thinking you can have a tax advantage through 1031. No, you can't. You live there and it was not property that you've held for productive use in trade or business or for investment purposes. Okay. Or also, had the intent okay. to do it, but something happened. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's going to be a list of questions I'm going to ask you so that you can then go talk to your CPA or tax advisor about it. Now, you bring up a point when you were just saying, is there a, a, an amount of time I have to have held this property before I go off and do a 1031 exchange? Well, there's nothing set in stone as far as how long to hold a property. And that's when it becomes based on intent. Yeah. But there are a couple sections of the tax code that actually give some holding requirements as it pertains to a 1031. The first one you and I just addressed, vacation home guidance. I talked about a 24-month period. Right. Not necessarily meaning two years. It could be three tax years. Every time the calendar changes is a new tax year. Right. And depending on where that 24-month period started, could be three tax years. Right. But two 12-month periods, 24 months. Right. So let's just say you can take a long-term capital gain in 12 months' time. It could be an aggressive approach based on what's going on. The IRS has many factors that they look at. Look at okay. And then you have the related party section of the tax code where if you were my sister and we swapped investment properties, we're each their investment, we need we are have to hold our properties for two years. So is that two tax years or is it a 24-month period? CPA is going to answer that question. But it says two years in the tax code where where we have to hold them. We can't do another exchange, we can't move into them, we can't change the use of the property at all. It has to be held that way. Now, then we know that the, and we do know that what, if you're audited, the IRS could ask you for up to three years worth of tax returns. So how long to hold a property is somewhere within that range based on your facts and circumstances to be able to, to qualify under section 1031 longer time is less risky. So um, I'm going to defer that back to the CPA. So one of the big questions that I, the elephant in the room is, what happens if it's under 12 months, which is when you can take a long-term capital gain. We need to look at the circumstances. If you purchase a property and you've just spent your time fixing it up and now you're gonna sell it, probably a fix and flip, it's gonna be considered property held for sale. But is there something that, did you try to rent out that property and you were unsuccessful? Do you have proof? What does your CPA say? 
did you get relocated as you were trying to get tenants? All of a sudden you have another job and they want to send you to California and they're requesting that you be there in two months for a job. You know, these are things that we're going to say, okay, what was your fact pattern? Why do you need to sell this property in under 12 months time? And would your CPA stand behind the 1031 tax code if you were ever audited and say it's a legitimate exchange? That's not my job. <laughs> right. No, interesting because I actually yeah, have a client who sir. had bought a property with the intention of fixing it up. Sorry, there's construction going on behind. Uh-oh, we better wrap okay. up here. Um, he had actually bought a property with the intention of renting it. And then, of course, all this drama happened and, you know, he thought, well, maybe it'll be better for me. Just go ahead and, you know, and sell it now. But he hasn't advertised it really or anything. He's just thinking about the logistics of renting now. Well, after this, let me just, if you'll shoot me a quick email, I will send you property help for sale, how long to hold and what doesn't qualify. Fix and flips don't qualify under section 1031. They don't. Now I've had people fix, they were going to flip, but they didn't and held it out for rental income. I'm working on an exchange that closes today. So she did hold it for a period of years after. So that's now a rental property. Okay. Um, I've had people that are fixing they're flipping, but they have no proof that they, they were going to attempt to rent it or anything else. What's your backup? What's your story? General fix and flips, no, it usually qualifies under property held for sale, but you can change your mind while you're doing it. Maybe you have had some activity that you were showing that you attempted to rent it and couldn't, and now you have a financial issue. We're going to walk through that. We're going to, I'm going to talk about the fact pattern with you. I'm going to send you property held for sale, how long to hold, um, and what doesn't qualify and send you to your CPA. Okay. To say, look at what they're asking for, what shows that something's property held for sale against your activities. What do your activities show showing that you were doing? Because those are all taken into consideration. Right. What else do you have for me today? Well, Lynn, this is really, this has been really fantastic. So I want to ask you, you know, what did I fail to ask? What do you, what do you think new people just starting out thinking about doing a 1031 exchange? What do they need to know that I didn't ask you? Well, how about if I just give you a summation? Okay. That'd be so perfect. First of all, please remember the role I speak to you from today is of a a qualified intermediary. A qualified intermediary is the non-related third party that you must use in a 1031 exchange. Our role is to produce documents to make it a 1031 exchange. And there's a role that we play in this process to, to make it happen, like produce documents. You, the, the investor cannot have control of their funds during the uh, exchange timeline, the funds. And so we take care of all that according to the treasury regulations. Now for the investors themselves, investors need to know these things, that the property that they are trying to exchange or wish to exchange is property that is held for productive use in trade or business or for investment. So it's held been held out for rental income, either residential or commercial or mixed use, where or an owner occupied and rental property at the same time. You can use your primary residence exemption and then do an exchange on the rental units. Um, a commercial, like say if you own a strip mall, okay, a chunk of dirt that you've held for appreciation, okay, those things, and different things like air rights, qualifying vacation property, Delaware Statutory Trust, um, there's a vast amount of things, property that you've held out to receive an income from, 
or run your own business out of it. So if you have an insurance agency and that's yours and you're the agent, you've got, you're running your business out of that property can also qualify. So there's a whole bunch of things. So that's, uh, and it's, it's once we go through the process to determine if you've held it for productive use and trader business or for investment, then you can go forward with the exchange. You must be purchasing other investment property that fits into the real estate investment class category going forward. So it doesn't have to be a multifamily for another multifamily. It can be a multifamily for a small retail plaza or for an office condo that you're gonna run your business out of. So again, it's very, it's, uh, there's quite a variety there. Um, tax ownership we didn't touch on is extremely important. The same tax ID number and the, and the tax reporting method you've been using must remain constant for a period of time to have a tax history prior to the sale and the exchange. And then, then upon purchase the replacement property and a period of time after. That's important, very, very important. And we would talk about that as I talk to taxpayers who want to exchange property and investors. And the other thing that um, people need to keep in mind, for a full deferral, you need to be buying other investment property that, that is equal or greater in value than the property you're selling, net the allowable costs of sale, and you can purchase a combination of multi, one or multiple properties to achieve that goal. You can also do a partial exchange. A partial exchange to be able to buy for less than what you sold for, but if the capital gain exceeds the value of the property that you're, you know, the, the, uh, the reinvestment value, then there's nothing to exchange. There's a formula for that. I don't want to take up time going through all the details, but you can do a partial exchange if you're if you have are buying investment property that gives you some capital gain to defer. You'll defer taxes on that, and then you'll pay taxes on the difference. But there's a math calculation there that we need to discuss. And make sure you set the 1031 exchange up prior to the close of that sale. So <laughs> you do need to make sure you have a reputable qualified intermediary that you've, um, you're working in conjunction with them and your tax advisor, making sure you list property with a real estate agent who knows a little bit something about it, but they cannot give you tax or legal advice either. Um, and then everybody else will be the same player in your, in your equation, but that's pretty much it. But, but start early in the process talking about the exchange with your agent, talk to a qualified intermediary and your CPA early in the transaction. Excellent. So that's not enough to keep you busy. No, that's fantastic, <laughs> Lynn. My goodness. I can't imagine a more qualified, qualified intermediary than you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love what I do. I have 20 years in the industry. I am a certified exchange specialist, which means like you as a realtor, Christine, I've sat for, I've worked, um, worked a number of years in the industry, sat for a two and a half hour exam, and I maintain certified education credits every two years in order to keep that designation. So all I do all day long. Excellent. 1031 Exchange Asset Preservation is a well-recognized national qualified intermediary. We are owned by a title insurance company that's been in existence for 120 years. We are uh, a subsidiary of that, and we've been in business for 30. All we do all day long is 1031 Exchanges. Beautiful. So, sure. Thank you. Lynn, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I know a lot of people are going to be, you know, I hope it's really opened some people's eyes as to what their opportunities are to, to, uh, defer taxes and to save some of their money for, for their investment instead of giving it away or 
sharing it with the government so they could send it to everybody in stimulus checks. <laughs> oh, well, absolutely. Once they see and they really understand the taxation on this, especially if they've owned this property for several years, yeah. how do you go earn that money back? Over a 20-year people, I have seen people, oh my gosh, some of my biggest deferrals were in the million dollar range. <laughs> like, where do you go earn that money back? Right. And it could be $25,000, for somebody in taxes, but where do you go earn that money back? Yeah. If you stay invested in real estate, you're able to use that to maintain and build your wealth through real estate. It's also an excellent estate planning tool mm -hmm. so that you can get property to your kids. At, um, they would inherit inherit it at the step up and basis, the tax, word tax deferment goes away. So um, people planning to retire, there was ways to do that and have, have less management responsibilities. And yet keeping those dollars that they would normally write out to the federal and the, the state governments, they get to keep and use that money to yeah, stay invested. Huge. So it's yeah. really, really great. Everybody, again, everybody's investment scenario is different. I welcome the phone calls if people will contact you. And then if they have a situation that looks like 1031 exchange may, should, be a, should be a conversation we have, yeah. and it may not be right for some people. Yeah. Please, you know, um, I'm not billable by the hour. So we're, <laughs> we're, we're a fee for service. So yeah. I welcome the questions. Fantastic. Lynn, thank you so much for that 1031 exchange primer. I can't wait to have you back where we dig deeper into the 1031 exchange process for folks who are a little bit more advanced. And thank you, listener, for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you'll always know when new episodes are out. And leave us your comments in the comments section. You can find notes. You can find out how to contact Lynn, as well as a bunch of information that she shared with us on the website, getyourfillpodcast.com. And there you can also leave comments and subscribe and let us know any questions that you have for Lynn the next time she comes on the show. I hope that you're staying healthy and happy with all this COVIDity going on. And be sure to tune in next week when we're going to have some really amazing person join us, although I have no idea who that will be at the moment. I promise it will be interesting. In the meantime, have a great day.